Hello, I'm Muriel, and I love true crime. I'm Nick, and I am not a fan. Thank you for joining us. Each week, I force Nick to listen to me tell him a story of a true crime. Welcome to Muriel's Murders. This week, we're reaching back into the Joshua Zeman vault to talk about the story behind the 2009 documentary, Cropsy. This week, we're talking about our Candymans, our Freddy Kruegers, our clown from the movie It. (laughs) (laughs) This boogeyman's name is Uh Cropsy. Uh, Cropsy's stories terrorized Staten Island Boy Scouts around campfires for decades. And, spoiler alert, this monster was probably actually real. So this is a true crime story about something that's not 100% true. We don't for sure, for sure know it's true, but we think it's true. Well, there's a man who is currently in prison uh-huh. serving like close to a 50 year sentence mm-hmm. for some crimes. <laughs> and that's all I'll say. All right. Okay. So we'll kind of go on from there. Uh, I love hearing that it's sort of like a horror movie because horror movies for me are just hilarious and cool. I like horror movies. They scare me sometimes really bad, but they're nowhere near as bad as a true crime thing. So well, I'm in, I'm feeling really relaxed. I think this relaxed. might scare you really bad. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> this is like this is a very uh, scary urban legend yeah. that uh, has a kind of surprise twist when people figure out halfway into the urban legend mm-hmm. being like in existence that actually, oops, this is a real person. Yeah, that actually would be really scary. I know it's pretty. It's a cra- It's a pretty crazy story. Uh-huh. All right, okay. So before we get to this crazy story, it's my favorite time of the week, and that's the time when we celebrate our newest Patreon member. Shout out to Ransom M. Thank you so much for supporting this podcast. Our Patreon exclusive episode catalog just keeps building and getting more and more banging. We just recently released a non-murder episode, uh, which was a throwback to our old faux pas lounge episodes we used to do for our old podcast if you find yourself listening to muriel's murders consistently it would be amazing for us if you joined us over at patreon the link is in the show notes of this episode and i don't know we're getting towards the end of the year i'm feeling sentimental and you know it's just like we know life goes on and on and on and changes freaking forever it's like oh my god stop changing anyways sometimes we find ourselves loving podcasts that we barely ever listen to and sometimes we kind of sort of hate podcasts that for some reason we listen to all the time we know how it goes so for whatever reason if you're listening to this show that we produce ourselves right here right now at this moment if you're listening we just consider it some sort of internet miracle and we're so happy to have you thank you for pressing play thank you that's great nick All right. Well, this is a true story involving murder, violence, drugs, adult themes, etc. So if any listeners are like Nick and they don't want to hear about those kinds of things, just go listen to a different podcast. Also, Mm -hmm. this episode does contain crimes involving children. So I just want to make sure people are aware. Thank you, Muriel. We're also going to joke and curse. So I... Also, just want to make sure that people are aware that sometimes we're hilarious and sometimes you might just think we're really annoying. Either way, if you don't want to hear that kind of stuff, uh, turn us off. Go paint, you know, like a portrait of your grandmother. 
All right, Nikki, are you ready to hear this story? No. Okay, let's get started. All right, so this week we are back in New York City, but this time our story takes place on Staten Island. Love it. So if you're not familiar, Staten Island is one of the five boroughs that make up New York City. It's where Wu-Tang Clan is from. Wow. And it's also where Mm -hmm. uh, documentarian Joshua Zeman is from. Okay. Okay, Joshua. Very cool. Very cool. (laughs) Hanging out with Method Man, you know? (laughs) You're amazing. (laughs) So for a long time, Staten Island was just farmland, like really, really rural, heavily forested, and really isolated from the rest of New York. It's just like a little sparsely populated, lonely island. So even while Manhattan was starting to crack off, Staten Island was just like a big park still? Exactly. Cool. Not a big not a big park, but just a very big, wild-ass situation. <laughs> I understand. Right, 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 right. So in 1947... The Willowbrook State School for Children with Intellectual Disabilities opened, taking in children from all around the region. In the 1960s, it reached almost twice its intended capacity and became one of the largest schools of its kind in the country, as well as the focus of an expose documentary piece by a young Geraldo Rivera Mm -hmm. called Willowbrook, The Last Great Disgrace. And we will get into that later. Okay. So what we're building here is a picture of a farmland island with a bunch of untamed wilderness. Yeah. And then in the 1940s, it becomes one of the largest schools for children with intellectual disabilities. And then in 1948, the Fresh Kills landfill opened up. And by 1955, that was the largest garbage dump in the entire world. They called it Fresh Kills? Yeah. It's such a wild name. Is that just where all the mobsters were throwing the bodies? Well, that's kind of the idea for Staten Island. It's like that was like a place that's rumored where people used to dump bodies. I don't know why they call it fresh Yeah, the old uh, rotting corpse dump over there. Very strange. Fresh kills. So then in 1964, Mm -hmm. the powers that be built the Verrazano Narrows Bridge connecting Staten Island to Brooklyn and then obviously the rest of the five boroughs, opening up the woody, isolated island to a modest stream of New Yorkers hungry for affordable housing and potentially hitmen looking for an easy place to hide a body. (laughs) So families settled in and little kids like our filmmaker Joshua Zeman grew up running around the woods causing trouble. Mm -hmm. So the Willowbrook State School closed in 1987, but the old buildings and the vast complex tunnel system running underneath the school, it all remained a tempting delight to little badass kids oh i would have played in that for sure see that's what i was like i was like i was doing the most with like weird tunnels and swamps and using plastic bags to fish in storm drains and shooting stuff with bb guns like we were definitely doing that and we're 80s kids so like super relate to that aspect of this story yeah i mean technically just whatever we're 90s kids but if there was an old abandoned building with a bunch of tunnels in it 
you could guarantee I would be playing in that. We used to, they're closed off now. I went back, but there used to be these tunnels in the beaches, like where my mom used to take us. Uh-huh. That were that would run. They're like sewer tunnels. Where <laughs> now, now we know that's where like you know salmon's li- like salmon lay their eggs, and like you shouldn't <laughs> d- disturb the ecosystem. Also, we know that high tide yeah, yeah. comes in and blocks the tunnels. Yeah. So it was always like you look out to the water and you think, okay. <laughs> It's like an hour before high tide. Let me break as many glass bottles as I possibly can. (laughs) And run through this dark spider-filled tunnel. Okay. So running across the middle of the island was a stretch of forest called the Green Belt. And lost in the weeds on the south side of the Green Belt was a large sprawling compound of abandoned tuberculosis wards, a crumbling former hospital for contagious diseases with a morgue and a cemetery, uh, all kind of a part of the Seaview compound, what was once the largest tuberculosis hospital in the United States. So I'm just building a Mm -hmm. picture of where these kids are playing, (laughs) right? So we've got a disease building that is now completely dilapidated. (laughs) And I would be 100% running around doing graffiti on the walls and throwing rocks and stuff yeah right so northwest of seaview was the massive willowbrook state school the one that is now kind of falling apart Mm -hmm. and then sandwiched between the burnt out vine covered outbuildings and the winding cement pathways was a long dormant farm colony where poverty stricken disabled and elderly were sent to work in exchange for room and board until they died so like a poor farm so that's like in the middle of all of these woods in Staten Island. That's the set of abandoned buildings that you have. So you mean haunted, haunted industry complex, the capital of the world for that. Kind of. And the world's biggest garbage dump until 2001 was also there. <laughs> and this whole monument to suffering sat on hundreds and hundreds of wild, thick acres of land. And of course, Uh this was the perfect spot for a Boy Scout camp. (laughs) (laughs) So that's where Joshua Zeman grew up, climbing through old abandoned buildings Uh filled with trash and graffiti and very eerily composed living areas that hinted at a lingering group of residents. There's people definitely living in these outbuildings. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm saying for sure. But again, if I grew up in that neighborhood, I would half live there also. I mean, I understand what you're saying. I mean, clearly this is, they're inviting evil spirits to come through and there's like definitely Freddy Krueger's hanging out and then also just homeless people that are like, I'm, I live here and everything. And like underneath, you know, is this huge tunnel system. So not only is there like an above ground thing, there's a giant What is up with the tunnel thing. system? Who, what were they, they were supposed to get from building to building or what was it originally? So what I read, the center of the tunnel system was under the cafeteria. And I don't really know if it's for emergencies or if it was uh-huh. for trying sometimes like these tunnel systems exist because the the winters are really harsh. And so it's Mm -hmm. a way to travel between different outbuildings, Mm -hmm. you know, without being outside, but they're meant to be traveled through. They're not like sewers. So 
I mean, people definitely could be like down there in the two in the tunnel system. Right. Or if someone dies in the cafeteria and they don't want to freak everyone else out in the building, there's a little trap door. You just go into the tunnel and get right. them out. Instead of freaking them out, right? You just grab them by their leg like Freddy Krueger. <laughs> yeah, come underneath down. the floorboards. Yeah, man. Take them over to Fresh Kills. All right. Yeah. Okay. So, so this is literally invented for to scare people. It just exists. And I. this is the context for which the legend of Cropsy came about, mm-hmm. right? So in this Boy Scout camp, little Joshua Zeman would be hearing stories about this madman named Cropsy. Yeah. In fact, all up and down the Hudson River, basically the region in New York from Staten Island to like way upstate past Albany, there was this buzz about this Cropsy guy. So it wasn't just Staten Island. Like Mm -hmm. Boy Scouts, kids, whoever, were always talking about Cropsy. That's the regional boogeyman for the Hudson, that Hudson River region. Uh, In some spots, he was like a killer doctor with a hook for a hand. Mm -hmm. Sometimes he had a big old butcher knife. Other times he had a rusty axe. He had different motivations, like depending on where you were from. So like one would be his wife had been killed unjustly and he wanted revenge. Another one was like he was mercilessly teased too much and now he wants only to kill children. Um, And then one of them is just Uh like he just really wanted to kill children. No other motivation. Okay, but that's his thing, killing kids. Right. And parents, like a lot of the kids who grew up during this time kind of like in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, said that their parents would really lean into it. So it wasn't weird for a mom to say, okay, you can go. Don't stay too long at the mall tonight or Cropsy's going to kill you. Man, who who would have kids and in their right mind not do that? (laughs) I don't know. Maybe that's why we don't have kids. (laughs) I'm sorry. Every single parent is 100% justified for saying that. See, okay, you know what I'm imagining? Skinny tall clothes like um made out of like burlap sacks you know i'm thinking like scare uh, scarecrow aesthetics a little bit you know what i mean like maybe you think he's human but then his hand reaches out and you realize his fingers are made of straw or something but yeah. they can still like scrape you and he likes to scratch you before he kills you yeah, that's, that's just what i'm going that's with. definitely the fun version of cropsy when we get done with this story <laughs> it's just so like some poor guy named john who's just Evil? Okay, sorry. In Joshua Zeman's region of Staten Island, of course, mm-hmm. Cropsy was an escaped mental patient from Willowbrook who lived in the tunnel systems below the compound. Mm-hmm. And this Cropsy would come out at night and snatch little children off the streets. And, like I said before, mm-hmm. this Cropsy, out of all the Cropsies, might have been real. Kids were disappearing. So this story kind of arguably starts on July 9th, 1987. Jennifer Schwager was a 12-year-old Staten Island girl with Down syndrome who had disappeared. She was a like a really sweet, friendly girl and had kind of wandered off at some point in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. So there's this massive outpouring of support with these just hundreds and hundreds of people, teams of volunteers combing through the hundreds of acres around Willowbrook. So the buildings and the tunnels, people were going down into the tunnels. That's where she escaped from. She was at Willowbrook. No, at this point, 
Willowbrook is shut down. Sorry. Yes. She just left her house and it's close to Willowbrook. Right. Exactly. So Willowbrook, it did shut down officially in 1987, but by the time it shut down in 1987, Mm -hmm. we'll talk about this later, but it had gone from like, I think five or 6,000 residents at its peak to like Mm -hmm. 250 residents. Mm -hmm. So all of these buildings had already been systematically shut down and were decaying over the years. Um, By the time Jennifer disappeared, the school was finally closed for good. So you have all these people running around searching for Jennifer and Willowbrook and also Seaview and all of, I mean, it's probably like, I think it was like 600 acres of woods all Mm -hmm. around this place. And there was one suspect. They had one suspect, and that suspect was a man named Andre Rand. Mm -hmm. So Andre Rand was a local man who lived in makeshift campsites in the woods around Willowbrook. So, you know, already has a Cropsey-esque sort of vibe about him, right? Uh Born in 1944 as Frank Russian, He grew up in Ithaca, New York, so nearby but not in Staten Island. Uh, Rand's father died when he was 14, and then Mm. his mother was committed to the Pilgrim Psychiatric Center on Long Island, which in its its, its heyday held almost 14,000 patients and was possibly the largest psychiatric hospital in the 1950s in the U.S., so Mm. it was a massive building. So Rand... You know, after he turned 18, he joined the army. He served for a couple of years. And after he was discharged, he worked odd jobs in Staten Island and was like a hand-painted sign maker. You would hand-paint signs for people. Oh, that's what I want my job to be. I know. I like that that detail. detail. Very good. (laughs) Uh, In his early 20s, Mm -hmm. Rand worked as a janitor at Willowbrook State School from 1966 to 1968. Um, And then after he left in 1968, that's when he changed his name to Andre Rand. For any particular reason that you found out? No, but no. Okay. But I think that one thing we can say once we like talk about what happened at Willowbrook State Mm -hmm. School is that it was probably an incredibly traumatizing Mm -hmm. event for everyone involved in, in, in the school at that time. Now, Willowbrook had been a center of controversy since the mid-1960s. It was a place Robert F. Kennedy called a quote-unquote snake pit. Mm. Basically, back in 1965, Robert F. Kennedy toured Willowbrook and was just basically totally shocked at the state of the hospital. Not as a failing of the administration, but as a failing of public funding and public regulation. Basically, he was horrified by the filthy conditions in Willowbrook because they had no money and no staffing. They mm-hmm. It was just like completely out of control. So sorry, families are sending their children who have intellectual disabilities to be taken care of there, but the facility is just underfunded and it they're not being taken care of. Right. And it was just during a time when like it was just kind of uncharted territory. I think that mm-hmm. they were that's where you would send your child and it would be like this is the best thing for the family and the best thing for the child. And yeah. then you'd go, they're on an island, you live in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. You'd go out to visit them and then see how horrific what's happening yeah, you know yeah there was a and you know we've talked about this in the podcast mm-hmm, before but mm-hmm. like you know the long history of like these types of institutions are right. just really 
rocky in the U.S. and other and, and other places. I think I read one article that I didn't include, but I just thought it was in. I mean, it was interesting about a woman who was committed to Willowbrook at the age of three because she was uh, developmentally delayed. Mm-hmm. Basically, she couldn't talk. Yeah. And doctors just told them, you know, her, her parents, like, there's nothing you can do. She's going to be like this forever. And she was committed at the age of three to Willowbrook and she lived there until she was 18. Wow. But she was totally neurotypical it just turns out so like but she couldn't get out and her parents couldn't get her out she was just there right um so it's a lack of understanding from the whatever educated world mixed with what sounds like pretty legit neglect yeah and really Mm -hmm. severe underfunding and kind Mm -hmm. of places that are from the documentaries perspective i think what they talk about is places like staten island that are kind of tucked away Mm -hmm. so People pay their taxes. It's funded by, I think back then they used to call it the Department of Mental Hygiene. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a budget that's public and, you know, millions of dollars go into these different institutions, but they're kind of, you know, not a very visible place. And so people just assume, I think, at the time that things were just happening the way that they should be happening. But really, they were not. And Willowbrook was like kind of a very horrific version of that yeah so robert f kennedy horrified by the filthy conditions in willowbrook publicly vowed to enact change and basically he was assassinated three years later nothing happened and by 1972 about seven years later the willowbrook state school was largely forgotten and the state of the school was much 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 worse Wow. So in 1972, a Dr. Michael Wilkins, who'd been working with the children at Willowbrook, had been fired for trying to organize the parents of patients so that they could be more effective in leveraging better care for their kids. He was trying to help the parents become empowered to kind of enact some major change. Yeah. And the administration fired him. Damn. So in response... Wilkins, in turn, called a young investigative reporter named Geraldo Rivera over to the school, who went on to produce a short Peabody Award-winning documentary piece called Willowbrook, The Last Great Disgrace. Wow, yeah. I think I've, I feel like I'm sort of, I vaguely remember that. Yeah, I, it's a... It, I knew that. It's on, if people are interested in watching it, yeah. it's on, the full thing is on YouTube. It's 37 minutes long. It's yeah. not very long. Um, and it's, it's really disturbing. It's really disturbing. And, um, I think Geraldo Rivera did just an excellent job. I mean, essentially what they did, we're not going to get too much into this, but they dodged the administration. So they kind of played this game of chicken where they kind of could get into the facility because of connections that they had. Then they'd interview people without the administration there and tape, and then they'd leave and then they'd come back and and talk to the administration and say, yeah. hey, can we come back? And so before they would show up, they would, you know, the administration would like clean everything up, you know, mm-hmm. and then they would go back and see if it had changed permanently. And I totally it remember this. Yeah. yeah I rem- the image in my mind is Rivera talking to like a child in this room where they all sleep and the room is dark. There's no lights very on in dark. the room. Yeah, yeah. And so they're kind of talking close to the doorway, but the room just has like mattresses on the ground. Yeah. And they've just been like peed themselves and pooped themselves. And it's like filthy and 
clearly cruel. Right. And we'll we'll definitely get okay. into okay. it. But okay. like, you know, it is also supposed to be a school and there was just like literally mm. no education happening mm. and these kids needed it. They needed education and stimulation and all that kind of stuff that was not happening. Yeah. Um, there were also other issues like with nearby schools. I'm not exactly sure what happened at Willowbrook, but there was another nearby school where like they were so understaffed they had to shut down whole wards of brand new beds because they didn't have enough staff. So they were cramming all these kids into these, you know, really overcrowded rooms because mm-hmm. there was not enough people to actually staff each of the wards. So basically what Geraldo Rivera found in building number six where Dr. Wilkins worked was just, like we said, absolutely awful, severely mentally disabled children were naked, partially clothed, covered in feces. The whole situation was obviously completely out of control. So at the time, New York State was going through a budget crisis. And in 1970, they put a hiring freeze in the Department of Mental Hygiene, which is the kind of department that oversees all these schools. Mm-hmm. So over the course of about a year, Willowbrook lost around 800 employees that they were unable to replace due to the freeze. So I'm assuming there's a high turnover in terms of employment there, but yeah. they lost them and they couldn't replace them. So a bad situation got a lot worse. A lot, lot worse. So by 1972, there were around 5,300 patients at Willowbrook and the standard patient ratio that they were supposed to be holding up was around four children to one attendant. With the hiring freeze, the caretaker to patient ratios were around 40 to one. So basically, the most staff could do is just try and keep the wards clean. That was basically all they could do. Mm -hmm. And when you're talking about when Andre Rand was working there, he was like doing custodial work and doing the similar. So he wasn't supposed to be working with the kids. But at that point, everyone was basically doing custodial work. There wasn't anything else going on. Right. So not only were the residents not attending any sort of school, they could spend days without even being spoken to. And the other thing that was going on is that because it was so dirty, they were all sharing diseases. They had a really limited amount of toilets. It was just incredibly difficult to keep things clean. Dr. Michael Williams, which is another doctor that Rivera interviewed, said that 100% of the patients in Willowbrook contracted hepatitis within six months of being in the institution. Wow. So most contracted parasites. There was severe emotional trauma because they're like fighting over resources. Totally. Like a piece of paper. He was yeah. like, they'll just something to play with. Yeah. And, you know, just being there is obviously really traumatizing. You know, and and you think about other things, right? Like the feeding times drop from 20 to 30 minutes per patient to two to three minutes per patient. So you're thinking of feeding a kid. They have to each be fed in two to three minutes. And because a lot of the children couldn't feed themselves, the food was generally some sort of sandwich or bread or something soaked in liquid like milk. Mm. And so, you know, what the doctors at Rivera interviewed said is like the result was a lot of the kids would aspirate on the milk and contract pneumonia. And so that was like a really common way that kids got sick or sometimes died in the hospital was from, you know, just the method of feeding. Jesus. But even with this big expose, there really wasn't some giant monumental change when it came to Willowbrook. Basically, 
1983, they had started to shut Willowbrook down. They were starting to rebrand it. The amount of patients dropped to a tiny number, around 250 patients from its peak at 5,300. Mm-hmm. And then in 1987, it shut down completely. So out of those 250 people, some people were transferred to group homes out of these kind of bigger state institutions. And then others, like that were of age or over 18 were released to fend for themselves. So part of the rumor in Staten Island was that some of the patients through habit returned to the abandoned building to live in the tunnel systems Mm. under the building. So it is true that when they were looking for Jennifer and went down into the tunnel systems, they would find places where it was like swept up and there was a bed and a cot there's clothes there's you know wow. food garbage so there's definitely yeah we don't know who those people were but sure. there were definitely people living down yeah there. yeah it was hard for me to find information about andre rand i found a printing of his rap sheet in a new york daily news article we know they're a little shady but you know that was the best I could do. And then I yeah. found another from a, a, like another article about him from a local Staten Island paper, the Staten Island Advance. So with those articles and the documentary, here's what I was able to piece together about why Andre Ran may have been obviously Cropsy. Okay. <laughs> So that's a funny ass way to say. It. <laughs> Sorry, I know. Speculatively, I was, why he definitely was the murderer. I know it, it's such an interesting documentary. It's yeah. it's so heavy. I know it's really heavy, and it's some horrible. of this stuff like is actually from the um, Geraldo Rivera documentary. Mm-hmm. Cropsy doesn't get that deep into it, mm-hmm. but I just thought I'd include it anyway. Great, and at the same time. You know, one thing about this person to me that I took away is that they just lived in plain sight for so long doing the shadiest things. And it's like, and he lived on Willowbrook. Like all of the ways that they describe Cropsy, Mm -hmm. this guy kind of just did those things. Okay. Okay. So one year after he left Willowbrook at the Mm -hmm. age of 25, Rand abducted a nine-year-old girl and attempted to sexually assault her. He was actually charged a few years later in 1972 and sentenced to four years in prison, but was released just a little over a year in prison. And then he just went back out and started living in the woods again Mm -hmm. in Willowbrook. Okay, so that's not a rumor. No, that did he, happen. That happened. That, that's a part of his rap sheet. Okay. It did happen. In 1979, he was accused of rape of a 15-year-old girl and another woman who both declined to press charges, so he was never charged with those crimes. Mm-hmm. In 1981, he was accused of following a 9-year-old girl into her home. So the story that the girl told was that he was trying to lure her with candy, so she ran away. And she ran into her house and he followed her into the house and was looking for her. And she hid under a rug in one of the rooms until he went away. Um, no charges were ever filed in that case either. But that's the story. But they, but it was him. Yeah, it was it was him. But they didn't. The parents, for whatever reason, didn't press charges. Man, that little girl handled herself like a pro. Then in 1983, just two years later, Rand stole an entire busload of kids from the Staten Island YMCA. What? 38-year-old Andre Rand was working for a school bus company, and 
He just drove up to a YMCA in Staten Island with this old janky bus van hybrid and just told a bunch of kids to hop in. So it being <laughs> it being the 80s. They were like, cool. 11 kids aged 5 to 12 years old did indeed hop in Andre Rand's janky van. So he kept the kids yeah. for about five hours he drove them first to a White Castle in Elizabeth, New Jersey from Staten Island uh-huh. and then bought everybody hamburgers and then he drove them to the Newark airport to just like watch the planes take off and land and uh-huh. he kept them until about nine o'clock at night. Uh, when he returned the kids, based on interviews and examinations, they were all completely unharmed. Rand was arrested and charged with unlawful imprisonment and endangering the welfare of a child. He ended up serving less than a year in prison for that. Uh, afterwards, I feel like if you did that today, you they would there would be a mob. But you would just you would there's no way you would even be alive. Well, all these things happened in Staten Island that a guy who lives in the woods just keeps popping out and doing. They like he's convicted of something. Some things like they know happened, but the people didn't press charges. And then he stole a literal busload of kids. And, and stole them for five hours. So at this point, when he's doing all, it's eighty one when he steals the kids. Is the I is the legend of Cropsy around yet? It's eighty three when he stole the kids. Okay. His first crime that he committed uh-huh. was in sixty nine. Okay. And the legend of I mean, people have been the legend of Cropsy was like chilling. It was around for it was like around. a long time. I mean, I think I think it's like sixties, seventies, eighties, nineties. Like it's a it's a legend. You know, for a long time. But he's doing this in this, you know, in the 60s, in the 70s, and in the 80s, right? Mm-hmm. So anyway, he he spends less than a year in prison for taking the kids out on the bus, after which he just returns to live in the woods surrounding Willowbrook. So in 1987, when Jennifer Schweiger disappeared, of course, all eyes were on the man who stole a busload of kids a few years earlier. But there was no physical evidence connecting Rand to Jennifer. But there was some damning eyewitness testimony. On the day Jennifer disappeared, several people claimed to have seen her holding hands with Rand or a man who looked like him while the man walked a mint green women's bicycle with a basket on the handlebars. Mm -hmm. And remember, Jennifer was just like a very trusting, sweet girl um, with Down syndrome and so yeah. like, it wouldn't be out of character for her to hold hands with a stranger like right. at least yeah, what her yeah. mother was saying. Yeah. So then aside from that sighting, separately, around the time of Jennifer's disappearance, an NYPD detective saw Rand in a shop right buying a bunch of baby food, which just struck him as odd. Mm-hmm. And then getting on a mint green women's bicycle and riding away into the woods. So Rand was questioned and released due to lack of evidence. Those are the only two things that people had. Yeah. Um, so what investigators did is they worked with a local storefront preacher to kind of keep him under surveillance. So basically they told Rand, you know, obviously you're released, but you have to stay where we can find you. And so they arranged for him to stay in the home of Reverend Charles Musket and his young family. He had two young kids. Uh, so they bugged the home, uh-huh. bugged Rand's vehicle, 
and then moved ran in with this family and they kept him under surveillance i think for about four weeks it was four weeks from his from his initial arrest Mm -hmm. so within that you know he was living with the preacher and doing that kind of thing so according to detectives Right before the arrest, detectives took Rand to a hotel room and they're really intensely questioning him, trying to get him to admit something, right? And when they got nowhere, they actually played Andre Rand, a co- like they had a copy of Geraldo Rivera's documentary. So mm-hmm. they knew he had worked there at some point and they feel like his victims are children. Mm-hmm. And so they felt like we're going to play this tape and see if it jars anything loose. And detectives said that Andre Rand, the man that people up until this point described as well-read and articulate. So mm-hmm. even though he's lived in the woods and done this crazy thing, he's actually yeah. a pretty well-spoken person, according to people. Okay. Basically, this guy goes into a state of shock upon watching the video. So first, Andre Rand started crying, and then his eyes rolled back into his head, and he started uncontrollably drooling, kind of just in a trance. And I've seen the press footage of his walk from the Reverend's storefront church to the squad car and then again from the car to the jail. And he almost looks like he's having some sort of medical crisis. Mm -hmm. Like he's totally in a trance. He has like drool pouring out of his mouth. He's basically can barely walk. His eyes are rolled up. And detectives say that he was in that state for three days. Wow. So he never admitted anything. Yeah. But that was his reaction to the Geraldo Rivera tape. Seeing the footage from back in the day. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was basically, the the footage came just four years after he had left Willowbrook. So, I mean, Mm. it's definitely within the same era. Right. So after Andre Rand is arrested, volunteers finally find the body of Jennifer Schweiger. Oh, no. So she was found in a shallow grave on Willowbrook grounds, just about 150 yards from one of Rand's known campsites. Oh, RIP. Up until this point, Jennifer Schweiger's murder trial was the biggest trial in Staten Island history. Mm-hmm. The only problem was there was no physical evidence linking Andre Rand to the crime. Just witness testimony, which we talked about last week, is kind of notoriously unreliable. Yeah. In the end, with everything considered, Andre Rand was convicted of kidnapping. So the murder charged was dismissed due to lack of evidence, but based on witness testimony, they were able to establish a case to convict him of kidnapping. Mm -hmm. And he was sentenced to 25 years to life. But here's the thing. Jennifer's case shook something loose in Staten Island law enforcement community. There were a number of unsolved missing children cases, and four of them ended up having a connecting thread. Okay. So almost two decades back, on July 7th, 1972, Five-year-old Alice Pereira was last seen playing with her brother in the lobby of the Tyson's Lane Apartments where she lived with her mother. So her parents were separated at the time and her dad, who was originally from Puerto Rico, was living in Manhattan. And at first, looking at the case, investigators believed her father had taken Alice to Puerto Rico that it had something to do with like a custody dispute. Mm-hmm. But he was eventually cleared. 
And Andre Rand was working as a painter and custodian at the Tyson's Lane Apartments at the time of Alice Pereira's disappearance. Mm. So later, witnesses claimed to have seen Rand walking with Alice away from the building, but Alice Pereira's case was never solved and it's still open today. Yeah. On July 18th, 1981, seven-year-old Holly Ann Hughes was playing outside of the Port Richmond Apartments in Staten Island when she disappeared. The case was always a little murky, especially, you know, especially when it comes to witness testimony, and that did not get better with the passing of time. So one story is that her mother sent her to Port Richmond Deli that was just a few blocks away around 9.30 at night to buy a bar of soap and clerks who worked at the deli at the time said they remembered this little girl because she was dark haired, small, and she was five cents short. So they weren't able to sell her the soap. Aww, man. Um, Holly then, I mean, I thought the same thing with that. I was like, well, back then things cost like 15 cents. So it's like yeah, pretty right. short, you know? Maybe, maybe that's a big percentage, but also it's like, she's a little girl. It's 930 at night. I know. Give her the soap. So Holly then disappeared somewhere between the deli and her apartment. So another little girl who was the same age as Holly with darker hair, who lived at at the same apartment complex at the time, claims she was actually the little girl who tried to buy the soap around 9.30 p.m., Mm. that she was about to take a shower. She realized they were out of soap. She grabbed some change, went to the store. She was a few cents short. So when she heard Mm -hmm. this story Mm -hmm. about Holly and the soap, she came forward to say, it was literally in the same hour that I remember doing that. Uh So it's a big coincidence if it was two of us. Yeah. So her assumption or her assertion is that the clerks were mistaken and the story had started to get garbled. And then finally, detectives say that when they interviewed Andre Rand at the time, he claimed he had given Holly money to buy soap because she looked really dirty. She'd been playing outside in like a bathing suit and shorts and she looked, her feet were dirty. And Rand, for his part, denies this entirely. He says he never said it. It was fabricated. But... We do know that Andre Rand's aunt lived in the Port Richmond apartments in her same in Holly's same building and that Andre Rand was visiting his aunt the day that Holly Ann disappeared. Yeah. Okay. All right. These are some pretty strong cropsy vibes. Right? But there's like no evidence. There's no <sighs> physical evidence, but that's like pretty wild. Every time anyway, I will keep going. Yeah. On August 14th, 1983, 12 days after Rand's release from prison after stealing that busload of kids, 11-year-old Tahis Jackson was last seen leaving the Mariner's Harbor Hotel where she lived with her mom and her three siblings. So the family's apartment building had recently burned down. So they had moved into this motel temporarily Mm -hmm. and they were planning on moving somewhere in the south in the southern U.S., so that afternoon, her mother sent Tahis to go out and purchase chicken wings from the Crown Supermarket, like kind of down the street around yeah. 1.30 in the afternoon. When Tahis wasn't back by 4.30 in the afternoon, her mom was right on top of it. She called the police. She's like, my kid's really street smart. She like understands how to, she's, she can get to the supermarket yeah. to do this thing. There's obviously something wrong. But no one could find her. 
And three days later, after she disappeared, Rand, again, was questioned. His camp, where he had been living in the woods, was less than half a mile from the hotel. And Tahis Jackson's mom said that, that a man strongly resembling Andre Rand would often go drive into the motel parking lot in his van and just sit there and, and chill and watch the scenery. Oh, okay. Dehees was never found and oh. there were no witnesses. Man, the other girls weren't found either, right? No. And finally, there was also the disappearances of a few adults that had been somehow connected to Andre Rand. Hank Gaforio was 22 years old when he disappeared from Staten Island on June 9th, 1984. So Hank had a low IQ and he functioned at about the level of a young teenager. He was last seen at the spa lounge in Port Richmond on Staten Island around 4 a.m. Um, and that's when he closed down the bar. He was drinking there. Yes. So he was reported missing the following night and then just never seen again. Mm. So he and his family lived on the same block as Rand was living at the time. And they lived just around the corner from Holly Ann Hughes in Port Richmond. Mm -hmm. So they were all in the same area. Aside from that, there were a few rumor-esque witness sightings of Hank drinking at the bar with a man who looked like Andre Rand, but nothing like concrete. And his body was never found? He was never found. In addition to Hank, a 42-year-old woman named Ethel Louise Atwell disappeared from the parking lot of Willowbrook where she worked as a physical therapist after a struggle in October 1978. So her body was never found, but her dentures were found smashed on the parking lot ground. Oh. And her keys were found about 75 feet into the woods where Rand was living at the time. She had arrived in the early morning hours around 6 a.m. while it was still dark outside and witnesses from inside the building heard her screaming, but no one could see anything. So they were running out, but they couldn't see what was going on. It wasn't a lit parking lot, basically. Uh -huh. So those are, there are, were a few I didn't include, like maybe three more cases where it's like something happened near Rand's camp. But those were the ones where it's like, he was a painter in the building. His uh -huh. aunt works at the building. Right. He lives right around the corner. He's known for stalking us in this parking lot. He sits in the van and watches my kids like he's been around. Plus, you know, also all the other stuff that he did get convicted of doing, like stealing the busload of kids. Right. And other crimes, including attacking little tiny children, girls. Yeah. So what you're saying is, is that after the Jennifer trial, everyone started, they started really being like, well, what about all this other stuff? Actually, right. it turns out this guy was there the whole time. After Rand's conviction of kidnapping in the Jennifer Schweiger case, yeah. investigators looked into these older missing persons cases. Mm -hmm. And in 2001, four years before Rand was eligible for parole in the Jennifer Schweiger case, investigators decided there was enough corroborating witness testimony to charge Andre Rand with the kidnapping of Holly Ann Hughes in 1981. Mm. There were enough people that said they saw yeah. something that they could actually go with it. Yeah. So this is kind of what prosecutors had. There was testimony from former inmates who had claimed to have conversations with Rand where he basically bragged about being a serial killer and bragged about specifically killing Holly Ann. Uh, they had 
they had decades old testimony from witnesses claiming to have seen Rand's green Volkswagen circling the block the day Holly disappeared. And when I say decades old testimony, I mean like people who are now coming forward after like 15 years, you know, uh-huh. who didn't say anything at the time. Right. Um, one witness, like when she was asked to describe the man driving this green Volkswagen, she just answered, he looked like he was a killer, you know, that's nothing. Right. One adult woman, Tanya Goodson came forward for the first time in 20 years. She testified to say she was six when she saw a man with a mask covering his face, lure Holly into a green car with candy. And she had never said anything about it. Did anyone else ever say they saw him wearing a mask? Was a mask no, ever and then, part of anything? No, and then anything? the documentarians making the the film, I think it was Joshua Zeman, goes, yeah. so the mask covered his whole face. Yeah, we couldn't see his face. So how do you know it was yeah. Andre Rand? And she's like, all I know, you know, she didn't right, have a yeah, for that. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And at some point during the trial, detectives testified that Rand admitted to playing hide and seek with Holly the day she disappeared. And then after they played hide and seek together, he gave her money to go buy a bar of soap. And again, Rand like vehemently denies that. He says detectives invented that entire story. He never said it. And there's no recording of it. It's like mm-hmm. written, right? Right. So on the advice of his attorneys, Rand did not take the stand in his defense. And Basically, critics of the case claim that most of the prosecution's witnesses were former or current addicts coming out with brand new information after like two decades and were unreliable witnesses at best. Basically, like one witness who testified also admitted that on the day of the abduction, she was drunk and Mm -hmm. sitting in a park drunk and then said, oh, I saw Rand abduct Holly. So like... 20 years after the fact yeah. at the time being drunk. Now she's testifying. She saw everything. Clearly. A bunch of people like, yeah, we smoke weed and talk about Cropsy all day. It was definitely him. Right. And maybe it was right. right? But yeah. like definitely the, def- like his defense attorneys were like, this is so absurd, you know, mm-hmm. but in 2004, Andre Rand was convicted of the kidnapping of Holly Ann Hughes. Again, with no physical evidence, relying solely, almost solely on witness testimony. You know what that sounds like to me? You know how like Martin Scorsese finally won an Oscar and everyone was like, that's for his old movies. You know, it's for his body of work up until this point. Let's just give him an Oscar. That feels a little bit like this. So like we should have given you more time for the whole well, Bus all the thing and well, all and, and yeah. also the sexual assault that yeah. he was also entirely convicted of. Yeah. Like, probably, probably should have added a couple of years to that. You know, uh, I, we're just gonna feels like things have added up, pal. Yeah, yeah. So that's it. The most suspicious man ever, the man who is most likely Cropsy, was convicted. <laughs> Mostly based on eyewitness testimony. Yeah. And will spend the rest of his life in prison on two kidnapping charges. And with the exception of Jennifer Schweiger, none of the missing people connected to Rand were ever found. Wow. So when Joshua Zeman and these kids were sitting around the campfire telling ghost stories about Cropsy. Yeah. You're saying sometimes he had a hook, like there's always like a no, weapon involved. No, no, regionally involved. there were differences. Right, right, right. Yeah. But I just mean all the kids, there was like different stories about it, right? Uh-huh. 
But for Rand, there was never any weapon involved. It sounds like the only through line was usually there was a vehicle involved. Like he was known for his van, or he borrowed the bus, or he had the green Volkswagen. The there was no the through like line was snatching kids. That yeah. was the through line. However, you know that happened. But you know, one thing that I didn't really get into uh-huh. that the documentary gets into is the idea of different cropsies also opens up the possibility of a group of cropsies. Well, and that's so, why they call it crop, you know? <laughs> oh my God. Crops. It's like the idea mm-hmm. is there are some people who believe that Andre Rand, because he was in a position of not authority, but he was like working at Willowbrook, yeah. that he might have had a, like authority over a group of people who lived in the tunnel systems and was working with them. Oh, he's like the ringleader. Right. Or that they were take like that multiple people were involved mm-hmm. in some of these kidnappings. Wonder, and the uh, idea was like for Jennifer, I'm just adding this, you know, yeah, no, we're just the kids around the campfire at this point. Well, for Jennifer Schweiger. Yeah. Um, when they found her body because of the way that the blood is pooled, basically like in, if you, when you die, your blood kind of pools in the like, part that's closest to the ground if that makes sense so you can tell when a body's repositioned if you move it and the blood is pooled in a place where it wouldn't naturally pool okay and so they found her it looked like her body had been repositioned Mm -hmm. and so part of the theory of the people looking for these kids in these bodies Mm -hmm. was that there was potentially a group of people moving them through the tunnels and keeping them from being detected because the space was so big and it was so easy to get around in the tunnel system that potentially it was just, they were just moving them and that would have taken a group of people. Are you sparing us the cause of death of, for Jennifer? They didn't talk about it. They didn't talk about it. Yeah. They didn't talk about it. Uh I couldn't find it. Um, I wonder if he was doing, sadistic things to the kids while he worked there i mean we don't know what happened in willowbrook this is like there's no surveillance footage or anything like that but another thing that the Mm -hmm. documentary touches on is the idea that again this is during the satanic panic era and so people were thinking that rand was somehow connected to a satanic cult specifically to the process who we talked about last year oh, or last right, episode. Right, right. Uh, and that actually one of the leaders of the process retired in Staten Island and lived there. Mm-hmm. And so there's some like dark talk about like some sort of satanic backbone to what's going on. But that's basically totally unfounded. There's this amazing part of the documentary where uh, Joshua Zeman and his like co one of the people he's making the film with Mm -hmm. they go into um willowbrook and they're trying to see if they can find anything at night to see if they can stumble on anything it's super dark it's just them and a cameraman it's like really terrifying Uh one of them doesn't want to go inside of course the building they're arguing and then way out they start seeing flashlights and from like a silent group of people and they're terrified and like they go through this like black night in the forest and meet up and it's just a bunch of teenagers mm-hmm. also looking for cropsy oh. <laughs> and they're like oh man you really scared us oh yeah oh yeah i believe in cropsy and it's like the most yeah, hilarious yeah. like 
moment you know so i think uh-huh. this like they're like satanic rituals oh now we're stumbling upon these yeah. kids you know and it ends up just being a bunch of kids who are also just trying to get scared at night oh. <laughs> <sighs> all right that's it damn muriel all right you got any other resources geraldo rivera joshua zeman i'm doing your work for you <laughs> thank you some article that you said you read but didn't do but then you ended up referencing it that was like from npr i didn't i that one was just you know that story was crazy uh-huh. um no you're correct our sources are willowbrook the last great disgrace the documentary piece by geraldo rivera came out in 1972 the 2009 documentary cropsy written produced and directed by joshua zeman and then for some of the details of the missing people I used the charlieproject.org and the Doe Network, um, both that mm. kind of volunteer-based organizations mm. that compile all of the information from investigative cases into one piece so you can kind of read about missing people. Mm-hmm. Man, I feel really guilty about um, making jokes about how much I like horror films uh, at the beginning of this episode. I was listening to you do that, and I was like, oh, he's going to feel differently about (laughs) that. He's going to regret that. (laughs) Really, truly, from the bottom of our hearts, thank you for listening to Muriel's Murders. Muriel did all the research, writing, and hosting, and I did all the recording, editing, and post-production. This podcast was recorded, and it's going to be edited in an whatever, the next couple hours right here in this living room. <laughs> to help support the podcast and to unlock exclusive episodes, please sign up for our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Muriel's Murders. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with someone in your life by texting it to them through your phone. That would be amazing for Muriel and I. We love hearing from you. You all keep us inspired and motivated. To reach out to us, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Rate us on Spotify. Leave us a voicemail or send us a voice memo and we'll put that sucker into an episode. Tag us on social media. You can even go into your Gmail, Yahoo, AOL, or whatever your email action is and email us. (laughs) (laughs) You can find all that information and the links in the show notes of this episode. Or you can visit, get this www.muriel'smurders.com Our music is by Mario Castellini. Find him on Instagram at Castellini Beats. That's it. You're still listening. We appreciate you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.